If you have a Bible with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Peter. We'll be continuing our look at uh, 1 Peter over the next several weeks uh, as we began last week with the the salutation in 1 Peter chapter 1. And then if you weren't here with us, you may be wondering how we went from chapter 1 verse 3 to chapter 2 verse 1. Uh, We looked at the rest of chapter 1 about a month or two ago. Uh, and those sermons are available on our webpage if you're interested in catching back up. But in the meantime, we're going to continue pressing on, beginning with chapter 2, verse 1 this morning. I'll actually read, starting in chapter 1, verse 22, uh, this last paragraph of chapter 1 really launches us in to everything Peter is going to say, and it's relevant uh, to our passage this morning. So with the Word of God open before us, let me read First Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 22. Um, all the way through chapter 2, verse 12. Let me pray and ask for the Spirit's help before I do so. Heavenly Father, we come back to you today asking for more of your Spirit, asking for more of your help, for more of you. Would you open our eyes that we might behold the wonderful things that you have for us in your Word? And speak to us now, we pray. We are listening. Lord, help us to listen. In Christ's name, amen. This is the Word of God. Please take heed how you hear it. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the Word of God remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but to those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. Well, ours is an age of identity crisis. People no longer know how to think about who they are. 
Answers to questions about matters of self and identity are typically rooted in nothing more than one's feelings or present happiness or perhaps the community they associate themselves with. When asked who we are, we might answer according to our familial relationships or more commonly perhaps our occupation. You know that the number one question asked when meeting something new, someone new is, what do you do? Or perhaps whatever other thing you might choose to answer to give expression to your individualism or authentic self. This is why it's normal in our day and age for men to go around claiming that they're women, or women claiming that they're men, and some people, in all seriousness, not to be humorous, claim to be some manifestation of whatever they believe their animal self is inside. So long as it makes them happy, so long as it gives voice to their true self. We, say this, we see this playing out in reality around us on the news. We see it on social media. We see it in schools around our country. We also see it in, in our entertainment. Our entertainment is saturated with this idea of letting your true self be known, about speaking your truth. Who are you is answered, whoever I feel like and whoever I want to be. The world around us has apparently lost its ability to identify itself. And the problem, the reason for this is that most people don't have an anchor in their soul which identifies who they are. They don't have a tether from their soul to some greater reality, to a greater truth, to a reality that grounds their understanding of self in truths that transcend feelings or experiences or associations or particular seasons of life. So how do you identify yourself? What is your ultimate identity? And upon what do you base your answer to that question? Peter has some things to say about this in our text this morning. He tells us that everything about our lives, how we live, what we love, who we associate with, is rooted in our true identity, and our true identity is based on God's work of redemption in us. Having already identified us back in chapter 1, verse 1, as the elect exiles, those who have been chosen by God from before the foundation of the world to live as exiles on this earth, he now calls us In chapter 1, verse 23, those who have been born again, born again, given new life. And everything that he will say in this passage flows out of that reality. Everything he expects the Christian to do, love, think, want, desire, participate in, and associate with is rooted in this born-again identity, those who are now alive in the new Adam and dead to the old. And he says to us in this text that based on the reality that we are born again, there should be three things true about our lives, three ways of living, in other words, that reflect our true identity as those who have been born again. He tells us that we should live consistently with our born-again identity, that we should live corporately with those who have been born again, and that we should live commendably 
as those born again before a watching world. So as we examine these verses now, I want you to be asking yourself the question, am I living my life in a way that's reflective of my true identity? In other words, is my whole life, my choices, my interests, my behaviors, my longings, my relationships, my desires, do all of those things collectively speak to the fact that I have been born again in Christ? Well, Peter begins by challenging our lifestyle in verses 1 through 3. He wants our lifestyle to be consistent with a born-again identity. Here in verse, uh, verses 1, I'll read verse 1 to begin, but Peter's going to paint a contrast for us in these first three verses between the old way of life, the old identity, the old self, and the new. Listen to what he says in verse 1. Put away, he begins by saying, therefore, because you've been born again through the good news that was preached to you, through the living and abiding word, verse 24, therefore put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. These are realities of the old self. Those behavioral patterns, those sinful instincts, those actions are part and parcel of the old self apart from Christ. Uh, These um, natural instincts, we might call them, the old manner of living, these choices, in fact, to be malicious and deceitful and hypocritical and jealous and slandering. Well, what do these mean? And I'm going to take a minute to explain these because it's important for us to think of them in terms of the old self. And what may shock you as I go through this list is they sound an awful lot like terms that describe the new self sometimes, don't they? Malice is really a broad term for wickedness or evil. In this context, it's really the intention of a person to do harm to somebody else. Malicious intent. It's a disposition towards self-love and other harm. Self-love, I want to live in such a way that I preserve myself, build myself up, whatever it might be, at the expense of another person, even if it means hurting them. And I act towards them with malice. That's, That's the way, the natural way that the old man, the old woman lived. He says also that we should put away deceit. Well, deceit, deceit, we know, is lying or misrepresentation of the truth. We might think of the ninth commandment, not to bear false witness. And sometimes we kind of pat ourselves on the back that we're not going around telling big, bold lies that are just blatantly untrue. But we don't ever think about the ways in which we abuse this through things like exaggeration or storytelling. Some of you uh, fishermen know what I'm talking about here, don't you? You know that every fish you've ever caught is smaller than every fish your best friend has ever caught, and somehow between the water and the shore, every fish you've ever caught increases by 15 to 25% in size. That sort of exaggeration, that sort of being deceitful instinctively in order to boost your reputation, to build yourself up as part of the old man's way of life. That's how he used to be. That's how she used to talk. And Peter says, get rid of that. That's not what it means to be born again in Christ, who is, according to his own lips in John 16, the way and the truth. 
How can we be deceitful in the one who is truth? Again, this is about self-love, self-promotion. And oftentimes we misrepresent other people's stories to their harm, don't we? Well, hypocrisy is pretty obvious. We know what this is. It's putting on a mask. It's saying one thing about yourself and living another. And probably nowhere in the world is this a more present reality than in the church. How many of us come to worship week after week pretending to everyone else around us that we love coming here every Sunday, that we believe all the things that we confess and say, that we strive to be more like Christ, that we desire to be those who are forgiving of others and merciful and kind and gracious. But when push comes to shove, we're harsh and angry with our families all the time. We're unkind towards people who we share the road with. We speak ill of everyone we disagree with or who disagrees with us. And we know it, which is why we put the mask on as hypocrites. Envy. This is one that penetrates deep, doesn't it? It's that feeling of discontentment with what you have been given in life. It's a desire to have what other people have, even if it means taking it from them so you can have it. Envy effectively says that God has done a poor job of sovereignly ordaining my circumstances, and he did a better job with them, so I need to slide into God's seat so I can take from them and do better for my life. Again, do you see how that's self-love, self-exaltation, self-serving, and others harming? And then finally, Peter says, put away slander. This is statements that damage other people's reputation. Uh, gossip, backbiting, hateful speech. These five ways of thinking and being are the opposite. They're the opposite of Christ-likeness and Christian love, aren't they? Christian love is others-focused. That's why Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 likens Christ's love for the church to, uh, well, he likens a husband's love to his wife to Christ's love for the church. It's sacrificial. It's others-focused. It, it nurtures and supports and cares and sacrifices for the good of somebody else. And all of these things do is they sacrifice other people for the good of self. Well, look back at chapter 1 with me. Peter here says, you've purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, loving one another earnestly from a pure heart. How can you be loving to one another if you're full of malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander? Well, you can't. And that's his point. But the good news is you've been born again by the living and abiding word which is imperishable. And the spirit, Paul says elsewhere, has been shed abroad in your hearts so we're able to live this way in the Christian church. And this is what Peter wants us to do, to live our lives consistently with having been born again. He wants us to Live lives of Christian love that build up rather than destroy like these sins do. And our instincts, apart from Christ, is to act like this list here in chapter 2, verse 1. But because we've been born again, a consistent pattern of living is to live like Christ, to put away these old things. Think about what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. 
there's a, there's a, it's okay to say this, by the way. There's a biblical expectation that there will be a difference between us and people who have not been born again. There should be a difference because we've been born again. All of us are born into Adam. All of us are born into original sin and actual sins. All of us are born into the former way of living, the old manner of life with malice and slander and envy and deceit and hateful talk and so on and so forth. But we in Christ have been born again to a new way of life, a whole new way. And Paul wants us to live consistently with that. So do these five self-serving behaviors in verse 1 describe you? Do you find yourself lying or exaggerating or storytelling to make yourself look better to the people around you? Do you claim to be a faithful churchgoer while Monday through Saturday acting like your shadow has never darkened the door of a church in your life? Do you speak highly about the love of God while being harsh and unkind and unforgiving with people around you? Do you fight daily feelings of jealousy and discontentment as you observe the successes of others around you at your work, in your neighborhood, or in your family? And before you dismiss these questions out of hand, ask yourself this. Would my family agree with the answer that I want to say right now? Because they know you best, don't they? And they see you when the mask is off, don't they? Everybody takes off their makeup before they go to bed. Your family knows whether or not these things are descriptive of you, if you would identify with this list. But Paul says, don't be like that. Instead, because you've been born again, here's the contrast. Look at verse 2. Like newborn, there's that born again language, newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into your salvation. Long for the pure spiritual milk. Newborns, we've got some, I've been watching some infants, infants have been feeding since our worship services started. Why? Because they need milk. They need it to live. They don't, it's not even, it's not even running through their minds. None of the infants in here, and a lot of you, a lot of you pregnant moms in here who maybe for the first time in the near future are going to experience this, you're going to find out that there's no like uh, alarm clock that goes off. It's not like a three meal a day sort of thing like the rest of us are kind of accustomed to. Uh, there's no calling the waiter or deciding, where should we go to dinner tonight? I think I'll go, I'll have milk again. That's not part of the baby dynamic. Infants instinctively long for, they crave it because without it, they'll die. Do we think about spiritual nourishment like that? Do you realize that every time this book is open, every time it's read, every time it's preached, every time you pour over it in the morning hours, in the late night hours, with nothing but, but the your Bible here and your mind is freed from all the distractions of the world and you're focusing on finding Christ in this word, every time you do that, you are being built up into your salvation, growing in Christ. You're learning to live the new life, having been born again. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from God's mouth. This is pure spiritual milk. Paul's up here here is not talking about like being immature Christians and only needing milk, not meat. He's saying you need everything in here just like a baby needs milk. All of it. And he wants us to live consistently with that sort of identity. As one who is so dependent on God's word that without it I cannot grow up.
Who wants this sort of milk? Well, he tells us. It's the ones who have already tasted that he's good, who have experienced the new birth in Jesus Christ, who have known what it means to be moved from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his marvelous light, from the kingdom of Satan and sin into the kingdom of his beloved son, from the kingdom of the world into the kingdom of heaven. Those of us who have experienced that and know that reality as it's been preached to us, the good news that was preached to you in verse 25, and have experienced this life-changing transformation, this rebirth, know we've experienced that goodness. And we long for more of it. I was talking with somebody recently about uh, the best food I've ever had. And this is a hard, hard one to nail down. At the risk of embarrassing myself, I'll tell you what I think it was. Uh, I officiated the wedding years ago, five, six years ago, back in Montana. And after the wedding, we had a, a reception at, uh, in the basement wine cellar of this, uh, this place in downtown Bozeman. It was really fantastic. And they brought in a chef. And the chef prepared, oh, I can't believe, I can't believe I'm going to say this word out loud. He prepared something that they call an appetizer, which is a one-bite appetizer designed to be his best creative effort in the kitchen. And it was, again, I can't believe I'm admitting this, it was beets three ways. It was a beet chip with beet tartare and beet mousse on top of it. And you put it all in your mouth at once. It was one bite. And it was the single best bite of food I've ever had in my life. And as soon as I was done, as soon as I was done, I almost sinfully looked around hoping somebody would be getting up to go use the bathroom so I could take their beet chip. Now, that's the level of longing for something that you have tasted and seen that it is good that Peter expects Christians to have for every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Do you love God's word? Do you love his word? Do you long for it, knowing that it alone gives you the pure spiritual milk in which you grow up in Christ. Well, Peter moves on to describe what it looks like to grow up, and he uses this building imagery, beginning in verse 4. He uses building imagery that's taken from the Old Testament. And he makes it clear here, and we'll deal with this here in a few moments, that this growing up is a together activity. It's a corporate activity. It's about living corporately with those who have been born again also. Look at the way he frames this uh, here in this text. We'll come to the corporate bit here in a moment. But he says, as you come to him, speaking of Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The first thing that we see here is that living corporately with those who share our born-again identity means coming to Christ first. That's the very first step is you come to him who is a living stone, he says. And this is really, really wonderful, wonderful for us to think about for a moment. Our Lord and Savior, the foundation upon 
which the church is built, the anchor of our souls, our only hope in life and in death, is a living stone, not a dead stone. So many world religions are built on dead stones, and they actually worship them, and you can touch them. And ours is based, founded upon a living stone. There are churches that dot this globe who have under them in the basements the bodies of dead men and women, kings and queens, priests and great men of renown, and they are all dead. And churches are built on top of them are often also dead because they don't give life. They don't give nourishment. They don't give purpose or vision or new life to churches. Only Jesus Christ does. One of the things that's so remarkable about Christ's covenant church, and we're, we're not unique in this way, but it is remarkable since we're here, is that our church is built upon the word of God being proclaimed. That's the living and abiding word. And the grace of God being modeled. That's the grace we've received in salvation through Christ Jesus as we reflect that out into the lives of one another. And the glory of God being extolled from here to the ends of the globe. Our church is founded upon a living stone. Not a big rock in that corner of the building or that corner of the building. But the living stone who is Jesus Christ himself. He is our vision. He is our centerpiece. He is our only hope in life and death, and it's around him that we as a church gather for worship each Lord's Day. That's important to know, that our church is built upon a living stone, and part of being a corporate body of Christ is coming to him first and finding our identity in him. Notice that uh, when we come to Christ and root our identity in him as those who have been born again, we become more and more like him. It's really plain here in the text as we start to look at this. In verse 4 and 5, it says, you come to him who's a living stone, and then what do we become? Living stones. We're conformed into his likeness, used by God for the same purposes as him. You yourselves are built up to be a holy priesthood. Now, it's not evident here, but in the book of Hebrews, what do we know that Jesus is? He's our great high priest and our priesthood is modeled after him it tells us uh, in verse 6 that he's the cornerstone he is that foundational centerpiece and we become the building just like him it tells us in verse 4 that he is chosen by god and again in verse 6 he is chosen by god and what does it tell us in verse 9 that when we come to him we are chosen in him Isn't that amazing? That as we draw nearer to Christ, we begin to reflect the realities of who He is. Ephesians tells us that we've been chosen in Him from before the foundation of the world, who Himself was elect of God from before the foundation of the world. Lastly, I I want you to see this in verse 6. Notice that as Paul, excuse me, Peter here quotes from the Old Testament, he says, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious chosen and precious jesus is precious to god look at verse 7 for you who believe 
you receive honor from God. Isn't that amazing? That the same love and affection with which God loves the Son, His chosen and precious one, is the same love with which He loves you. He honors you in His Son. We share in Christ's honor. There's no being chosen apart from Christ. There's no being a spiritual house apart from Christ. There is no living together with others in Christ apart from Christ. This is a corporate enterprise. Now, Peter uses language from the Old Testament here in this section of 1 Peter chapter 2, and this is really important for us to to meditate on for just a moment. Uh, Look at verse uh, 9. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Jumping down to verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter is quoting from Exodus and Deuteronomy and Isaiah and Hosea and all these Old Testament passages that are directed at the nation of Israel and God's relationship with them. And who does he apply them to here in 1 Peter chapter 2? To the church. He applies them to the church. And this passage stands against the idea that there are two peoples of God with two plans of of salvation throughout the ages. The church is no parenthesis in God's plan of redemptive history. It is the continuation of the one people of God throughout the ages. And that's good news to us because it means that when we read the Old Testament, we're reading our book. And when we read the promises that God made to the fathers, we're reading promises that he made to us through them. And it means that you and I can lay hold of the things across the pages of Scripture and know that they're for us, they're profitable for our reproof and rebuke and training and righteousness and correction in our doctrine, and they're able to make us wise for salvation in Jesus Christ. It's really important that we recognize that there is one people of God. We are the people of God. Scripture denies that there are two peoples of God. Rather, we are all the church. The church in the Old Testament and the church in the New. Or we could say the Israel in the Old Testament and the Israel of God in the New. Those of faith who call Abraham our father. There are differences, of course, In the Old Testament, the church was predominantly one nation, whereas in the New Testament, we're predominantly made up of many nations. In the Old Covenant, God set his people apart from the nations, and in the New Testament, he sets us apart as we live in the nations. But in both cases, we are called uniquely a nation, a people, and a race. And this is all born-again language. In this room, there are people from many ethnic backgrounds. In this room, there are people from many distinct groups. And yet, Peter here identifies us as one people, one nation, one race. Just like Paul does in Colossians, doesn't he? When he says there is no more Jew or Greek or circumcised or uncircumcised or barbarian or Scythian or slave or free, but we are all one in Christ. And why is that? Because the old identifying realities that we used to cling to for our self 
have been done away with and were born again into a new people, into a new race, into a new humanity in the new Adam, who is Jesus Christ. That's so important for us. It doesn't mean we jettison culture. It doesn't mean we jettison the unique things about us. But it does mean that we are brought together as each of us has been equally covered by the blood of Jesus. And so we live together corporately because of that reality. But like Old Testament Israel, you know, Israel was set aside and put in this unique piece of of geography and given a law to follow, a way to live. Everything about their life was unique. Their clothing, their diet, their calendar, their worship, everything was unique so that the people around them would see it and recognize the difference and come to glorify God. Why does the Queen of Sheba come up to see Solomon's temple? Because she heard about his wisdom, his life, and the way that he worshiped God. And what's it tell us here in verse 9? We're to do the same thing. You are a holy nation, a royal people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Allow me to say it this plainly. The Christian's true identity has, must have, an evangelistic dimension. It is not a complete living out of your Christian identity as one who has been born again without an apprehension of its evangelistic obligation. Now, I use the word obligation advisedly. Here's what I mean. In this text, frankly, throughout Scripture, the authors use a, usually list things that are inherently true. We call them indicatives. These are things that are true. Peter gives us many of them. You have been born again from a, uh, uh, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. You come to him, a living stone. You are built up as a, a spiritual house. You are a holy priesthood. He says, you are a chosen race. These are all just truth statements that Peter's making to each one of you because of the reality of your identity in Christ. You're born again. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Those are all wonderful truths which ought to undergird the way we live right? He doesn't even have to give us any imperatives here. Peter doesn't even have to say, so what you must do is tell people about it. He shouldn't have to say that. It's implied in the reality of these truths that those who have tasted and seen will be unable to contain themselves from telling others about it. Why? It's not because you're a holy nation. It's not because you're a royal priesthood. It's not because you're a uh, chosen race. It's because of His excellency who saved you from darkness into light. Take the rest of it away. Call us whatever you want. Get rid of all these other truths, not that they don't matter, but put all that stuff aside. If there were one indicative in this text, and it was this, God is excellent and has brought you from death to life. That ought to be enough to compel evangelistic witness, shouldn't it? God has saved you by the blood of his son. How marvelous and excellent are his ways to redeem sinners like us who deserve nothing but his wrath. And not only just to bring us up to zero in our account, but to overflow our account with all of his righteousness, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, Everything that's Christ's is ours? Really? 
And he says, you've been saved so other people will know about it. Without a true understanding of these realities, we will never be truly evangelistic. And so the sort of church model that shies away from talking about sin and talking about condemnation and talking about the wrath of God is an anemic teaching model that fails to give God's people a reminder of what they've been saved from. Do you know how dark the darkness in you was? Some of you, some of us, remember it. I pray for our covenant children. I pray for my children and yours, our youngest children here, that they'll never experientially remember the darkness in them, that they'll reach the end of this earthly life having no memory of a day where Christ was not their Lord and Savior. But many of us remember the darkness. Do you know how significant your sin is? What the Puritans called the sinfulness of sin? The cost of your redemption? Do you understand how marvelous the light is? How magnificent it is that the creator of the universe has called you a people for his own possession. You who had no mercy and didn't deserve it. Now have mercy and are called my people. Really? There's nothing else we can do but tell others about it. Proclaim the excellencies of him who saved you. And Peter says you tell people by proclaiming. Look at verse 9. Proclaiming, declaring, sharing. It's the same idea he says caused you to be born again. Look back at chapter 1 verse 25. This word is the gospel that was preached to you. Men and women come to faith in Jesus Christ through the proclamation of the word. It was proclaimed to you in the preaching of the word, and now you go out and proclaim it to others. But Peter gives us one last thing that we'll look at ever so briefly. He says you don't just do it by speaking. He says he wants us to live commendably as those who have been born again so the world might see our changed lives. And give glory to God. Someone is always watching. Isn't that terrifying? Not like, you know, Halloween's approaching, and so the movies are coming out now. I, every time I turn on the television, there's some advertisement for another horrifying uh, Halloween movie where some clown is in a sewer grate watching children ride their bikes, or some guy in a mask is hiding in a closet in a wall that nobody knew was there prior to him, you know, taking up residence in your house. Um, someone's always watching. Uh, you parents know this reality. How many of you have young children who, for no apparent reason, begin repeating things that you didn't realize that you said often enough for them to start repeating them? Yep. Yep. You know, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Someone's always watching. And in this case, Peter says, it's the world. The world is watching us. They're watching. And they are saying that we're evildoers. They're speaking against us as evildoers. How do we see this today? The Christian church are the ones who value unborn life, and yet we're told we're evil for trying to take away the rights a woman has over her body to end the life of a baby inside of her. 
we believe that God made men and women to be in monogamous heterosexual relationships with one another, and yet we're called evil and bigoted and hateful for speaking against identities and, and sexual ethics that oppose God's design. We believe that God made one man and one woman uniquely in their gender to exist in fellowship, compatible, uh, 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 complementary fellowship with one another, and we're called evil for rejecting perverted worldviews about what it means to be a human, an image-bearer of God. So when the world speaks of us as evil, which they're doing, Peter here says, keep your conduct honorable, keep it commendable, So that way, even when they say these things, it will be an unjust accusation against the church. It's not just the words we say, it's how we live that matters. And this demands that we're in the world, doesn't it? I hate to break it to you. There is no fortress church mentality in the Word of God. We don't just gather together, lock the doors, put all of our extra food and ammo in the basement, and wait for Christ to return even though that's what many professing Christians want to do. We must be in the world. We must be out there interacting with our neighbors, our unsaved family members, our co-workers, our teachers, our fellow students, our professors, our doctors, the people who work on our cars and on our roofs and all of those things, that they might see our honorable conduct and glorify God because of our identity in Christ. That's what Peter wants us to do. It's a life, Christian life is a witnessing life. We're called to live consistently with the reality that we've been born again, in corporate fellowship with others who are born again, and commendably before a watching world that they might see and hear the same good news that was preached to us as we live out the reality of our identity in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. Would your spirit enable us to do all that you have given us to do in this text today? You've caused us to be born again. We can't make it happen on our own. And so we trust that you will command what you will and give what you command, that we might be those who witness the reality of Jesus and his gospel to a world who is watching. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.